And now, The Mentors, one of the most popular and unique shows on the radio today. Each week, one of our four remarkable CEOs, including Tom Lord, John Phillips, and Rick Brutico, will challenge your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their success and for consistently putting people first, treating employees and customers with respect, and helping others succeed, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Now, here's your mentor. Welcome back. I am Tom Laurie, and our topic today is what can we learn from those who have had near-death experiences. Our guest mentor is Dr. Bruce Grayson, who is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia, and one of the top, if not the top researcher in the field of near-death studies. And he's been called the father of research in near-death experiences. He is the author of After, A Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences uh, About Life and Beyond. Bruce, welcome to The Mentors. You are known as the father of research and near-death experiences. How did that happen? What is that all about? I have no idea who gave me that title. But <laughs> I've, been, I've been studying near-death experiences or NDEs for about 45 years now. Uh, I certainly wasn't the first person to do it, but I guess I've been in it longer than most people have. Um, and what was it that drew you into this field? Well, I, I was raised in a scientific household, a materialistic household. My father was a chemist, and I grew up thinking that the physical world was all there was and that, uh, you know, what you see is what you get. And when you die, that's the end. And I went through um, medical school with that mindset. Uh, we never talked about anything spiritual or religious in my family. It just wasn't part of our conversation. And when I started my psychiatric training, I was confronted by uh, patients at the time who were describing things to me I couldn't understand, leaving their bodies when they were close to death and seeing things that they shouldn't have been able to see, and they described them accurately. Uh, so I didn't know what to make of those. I just sort of pushed them out of my mind for a while. And then about five years later, one of my colleagues at the University of Virginia, Raymond Moody, published a book called Life After Life. This was in 1975, in which he gave us the term near-death experience and described what they were like. And I realized for the first time that these crazy stories my patients were telling me were not just individual stories, but part of a worldwide phenomenon that was quite common. I still couldn't understand them from my materialistic mindset. Um, but as a scientist, I, that made me think I need to move toward these and study them and not just dismiss them, pretend they don't exist. So I started collecting other stories. Uh, I started looking for them among people who had cardiac arrests and were admitted to the hospital. And here I am 50 years later, still collecting stories and trying to make sense of them. And how would you describe what a near-death experience is for the audience? Sure. It's an experience that many people, maybe uh, uh, 10 to 20% of people who, whose hearts stop have, and it, it includes such things as a sense of leaving the physical body, feeling an overwhelming sense of peace and well-being, uh, often leaving the physical world and going to some other apparent realm or dimension uh, where they may encounter other entities that they may interpret as being deities or deceased loved ones. They often go through a review of their entire lives. And at some point they may reach a decision to come back to their bodies or be sent back against their will. 
And then they find themselves back in their bodies wondering what happened to me just now. So they can, they're either, I guess, they can be sent back whether they want to or not, or they can stay. That's right. That's right. They, well, they, <laughs> I don't know if they can stay or not. Uh, the ones I talked to all came back. Well, that's right. And then those, okay, <laughs> we'll have to make an assumption about those you didn't talk to. Yeah. Now these, as I understand it, uh, there has been a lot written about now that you've coined, or somebody's created the phrase, I think it uh, was Dr. Moody, yes. uh, about the near-death experiences. But you find them in literature, don't you, going back through, what, ancient times? Yes. Now that we know what to look for, we can find them, especially in the ancient Greek and literature, Greek and Roman literature. Um, one of the most dramatic cases was written by Pliny in the first century. Uh, but we have them, uh, somebody published a book with about two dozen accounts from ancient Greece and Rome. And today we find them in cultures all around the world, um, Hindu, Buddhist cultures, Muslim societies, as well as Judeo-Christian societies. So it, it covers all age groups, income levels, ethnic groups. I mean, it's not just something, and it's not new. It's gone, it's no. gone on for years. That's right. That's right. In fact, there was um, a book published uh, with accounts from uh, French fur traders who, who, who identified cases of these from the Chippewa Indians in what's now Michigan and Minnesota. Uh, so they go back uh, to other cultures as well. And uh, this whole idea of being outside your body, which is one of the attributes of a near-death yes. experience, it really raises a question about consciousness, yes, uh, particularly yes. when the brain has stopped. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Uh, you know, we're, we're certainly taught uh, that the mind is what the brain does, and, and the brain somehow creates all our thoughts and feelings and emotions. Of course, no one has any idea how a physical, a chemical, or electrical property of the brain can create a thought, but we assume that's what happens. And yet, in near-death experiences... The brain can be offline, it can be deprived of oxygen and not functioning, and yet people describe their consciousness, their thoughts and their feelings being more vivid than ever before. Their perceptions, they seem to be able to see and hear and form memories when the brain doesn't seem to be, to be uh, capable of doing that. I should say that this isn't the only example of this. Uh, there are other examples of experiences uh, that, that seem to occur with clear consciousness when the brain is not functioning. For example, there's something called terminal lucidity in which people with end-stage dementia like Alzheimer's disease and haven't been able to communicate or recognize family for years suddenly become completely lucid, recognize people, carry on coherent conversations, and then within hours usually they die. Wow. And we have no medical explanation for this at all. Wow. And... Uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is also somebody along with Raymond Moody, but she also, from what I understand, she interviewed 20,000 people. And Kubler-Ross, for the audience, is the individual who uh, created the cycles of grieving that we go through after a loss. But I read that she she was also involved in this as well. Uh, she was. Uh, she wasn't a rigorous researcher, so we don't really have good records of you know what she did. But she actually did some pioneering work back in the 1960s with uh, terminally ill patients and reported things that we now recognize as being near-death experiences. And uh, well, we're going to come back to that in a second. 
I my interest, uh, which I shared with you in near death experiences, began in 1978 when my father had one. Yes, uh, and then uh, I followed up at the universe at Columbia University in an executive management program, and ran into. Uh, Roger Blackwell, who was at Ohio State University, who was part of a uh, team of people that was exploring it. So I've had a very strong interest, as you know, in yes. near-death experiences yes. and read as much as I can. And we're going to come back in a few minutes and talk some more about near-death experiences. We're with our guest mentor, the father of research and near-death experiences, Dr. Bruce Grayson. He is the author of After, A Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond. You can go to our website, thementorsradio.com, and click on past shows to find many of our past great guests. This is Tom Laurie, and you're listening to The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and I'm with Dr. Bruce Grayston, the father of research and near-death experiences, and we're exploring near-death experiences and what they reveal about the life and our life and beyond. He joins us from the University of Virginia, where he serves as a professor emeritus of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences. Remember, you can also listen to the show or any previous show via podcast on iTunes, TuneIn, Spotify, Google, and more on any device at any time. Subscribe at TheMentorsRadio.com. Now, uh, I know you've had some interaction with Eben Alexander, Dr. Eben Alexander, who wrote a best-selling book. I right. believe it was called Proof of Heaven. That's right. Can you, for the audience, just briefly describe a little bit about what his experience was, which really got everybody's attention. There's no doubt about it. Sure, sure. Uh, Evan Alexander was a neurosurgeon uh, in apparently good health. And one day he was stricken by a, a very rare bacterial infection in his, in his brain, in a, uh, a meningoencephalitis. And within a matter of minutes, he was put into a deep coma. Uh, this was early one morning. And his wife called the rescue squad. And they rushed him to the hospital where he was already deep in coma. He started seizing. They gave him medications for the seizures. Um, and he stayed in a coma for the next six days. And during that time, he had a vivid near-death experience in which he went to a, what are apparently other realms or dimensions of existence. He encountered an um, unusual woman, looking woman, a beautiful woman who he never known, who somehow communicated to him that he was loved and taken care of. Uh, various things happened to him during this near-death experience. And in, from occasionally, he would come back to the physical realm and look down on what was going, he was going on around him in this hospital bed in the intensive care unit. And he was able to later describe things that were happening uh, around the, the intensive care unit uh, bed that he shouldn't have been able to see because he was in a deep coma. After six days in this coma, during which the doctors assumed he was never going to come out of this, he was... You know, people said they had a 1% chance of surviving this and virtually 0% chance of functioning after he came out of the coma, if he ever did. He came out of the coma after six days. And uh, at that time, he had no speech. He didn't remember who he was. He didn't remember, recognize his family. And it took weeks for him to get back his memory, including how to speak. However, when he woke up from his coma, he had a vivid memory of the near-death experience which he later wrote up and described in very great detail. Um, he came to see me two years after his near-death experience. And during that time, he wrote down 
everything he could remember, more than 20,000 words. And he said he wanted to do that before he talked to anyone about it so he wouldn't be contaminated by anyone else's description. And a couple of points you make. Number one, uh, before he talked to anybody, a lot of uh, it's your experience. A lot of people who have these are reluctant to talk about these. Yes. Yes. Uh, that's understandable. I mean, I, I originally thought people were crazy when they talked about these things. And I think people are afraid they're going to be labeled as, as crazy or ridiculed, or sometimes they just feel it's too personal an experience, too sacred an experience to share with other people. This is Tom Lohr. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show with University Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry, Dr. Bruce Grayson, who is known as the father of research and near-death experiences and has a book out called After, which I encourage everybody to get a hold of. It provides a lot more detail than we'll ever be able to provide on the show. So a uh, couple of things about Alexander. You certainly have plenty of examples in your book, uh, but Love is a big part of uh, unconditional love is a big part of a yes. near-death experience for a lot of people. Yes. Could you, and it was for Eben Alexander. Could you yes. talk a little yes. bit about that? Sure. Sure. Um, most people, almost a hundred percent of people who have a near-death experience report a sense of overwhelmingly being loved in this experience. And it's not love because you were a good person or a boy scout or a successful, whatever, just because you exist and you are part of, part of something greater than yourself, part of divinity, part of the universe. And because of that, you are loved and accepted and welcomed into this other realm. And when they come back to this world from the near-death experience, they're often very disappointed to be back here where there is no real sense of unconditional love. Here you are loved conditionally. You're loved because you're a good person, because you did this or that. And they really miss that sense of being loved just because of who they were. And there is, excuse me, there's also a sense of connectedness, right? Yes, yes. They almost always come back with a heightened sense of spirituality. And by that, they usually mean feeling connected to other people, uh, to the universe, to the natural world, and to the divine. And they feel they are a part of it all. So Alexander's book was profound for me in two areas. One, first of all, he had a chapter about this love that you talk about that was just incredible, powerful. Secondly, he talked, as you mentioned, different dimensions that he moved through after he had died as he was moving towards the light. Right. And a good friend of mine, uh, Andreas Wiedmar, was a Swiss guard in the Vatican and had been a bodyguard for uh, John Paul II. And had a lot of conversations with then Cardinal Ratzinger talking about uh, heaven, which is is a religious aspect for some, not all, but for some. Right. Uh, And they talk about this. And uh, Ratzinger noted that heaven is not a place. Uh, It's different levels of consciousness. Right. uh, Which really starts to get at some of the uh, understanding we have of physics and quantum theory and whatever. But I find this particularly as Alexander described it, he moved through different levels and got close to this light. Could you talk a little bit about this light that people talk about? Sure, sure. Uh, you know, people who have a near-death experience almost always say, along with Cardinal Ratzinger at the time, that we're not talking about a physical place. There is no sense of space, a physical space, or a physical time in this other realm, wherever it may be. And maybe saying wherever it may be is, is, is wrong because it doesn't exist anywhere. Um, in a place. 
but it's like it's another dimension of existence. And people who describe this to me will start by saying, well, I really can't put it into words. It just, there just aren't any words in English to describe it. So they end up using metaphors, whatever metaphors come to them to describe it to me. And those often turn out to be religious or cultural metaphors. For example, most people describe this warm, loving being of light that makes them feel welcome no matter who they were because they exist. And people who are raised in a Judeo-Christian household will say to me, you know, I'm going to call that God. So you know what I'm talking about. But this wasn't the God I was taught about in church or in temple. This is much bigger than that. But I've talked to people who are raised in Hindu and Buddhist uh, families that would not use that word God. They would use some other word or just call it a being of light. Uh, so a lot of the ways people describe these near-death experiences, and not just the being of light, but other parts of it, are metaphoric. So when they talk about other realms or dimensions or other levels of consciousness, I take that as metaphoric descriptions rather than literal descriptions of being to a different place. And could you ta- tell us the story about the uh, young lady who had the car accident and I think it was her MGB. Uh, do you remember? I think her name was Dunkel and uh, she was an atheist. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, we have, I got several stories of people who were atheists before the near-death experience and they encountered uh, a, an entity that they described as, as God, uh, or in some cases they say it was Jesus uh, based on you know, their, their cultural background. Even though you're raised atheist, if you're raised in this country, you know about uh, God and Jesus. So she described this entity that she encountered and said, you know, it's, it's, the only way I can describe it is as God. And I was stunned because I don't believe in that. And yet I can't deny my experience. And I've heard that again and again from people who did not go into the NDE, the near-death experience, with any sense of a God, and yet came out firmly believing that there is a God and we are part of that same divinity. We're going to come back and have uh, more discussion with Dr. Grayson, who is the author of After, A Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond. He is the top researcher in the field. Remember, you can now listen to our Saturday broadcast on iHeartRadio or afterwards, anywhere, anytime, anywhere, by subscribing to our podcast at TheMentorsRadio.com. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and I'm with uh, Bruce Grayson, University of Virginia's Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences. He is the world's top near-death, near-death experience researcher, and we're exploring what near-death experiences or NDEs can tell us about our lives and beyond. Uh, you know, one thing that comes to mind is there was a young lady who was actually a, a junior Olympian who had a brain tumor. And her father and I were pretty close. And she, it's a pretty well-known story because she ended up uh, swimming in the Paralympics uh, mm. after her uh, brain uh, glioblastoma affected her movement. Uh, but his dad, her dad told me that at one point in her uh, illness, she actually was greeted by a band of angels Mm -hmm. and they told her not to worry that they were going to care for her. And one of the things with near death experiences are these guides or these people that show up. Could you 
talk a little bit about the guides. And certainly Dr. Alexander had a guide as well, which we learned later was his sister that he never knew. But Right, right. Yeah, well, many people describe other entities who they variously describe as angels or guides or sometimes just as deceased loved ones. Um, but again, I, I take this as metaphoric descriptions. When you en- encounter this being or this entity that's unlike anyone you've known before, not, not quite human, uh, what do you call it? How do we describe those things? So you end, end up using some metaphor and what's often most convenient for us is calling them angels or, or guides. But I don't know what they really are. And I think most near-death experiences will say they don't know what it really is either. But, you know, they think of it in terms of what we know as, as angels. Um, but they do seem to participate in this general feeling of uh, welcoming you, loving you, protecting you, and letting you know that things are going to be okay. Fascinating. Uh, my mother had a, an experience when she passed away, and we were all around the bed. I won't get into it, but it what being there with my mother did for me was probably the greatest gift she could have mm. given her children. Wow. Is not to fear death. Yes. Yes. And I will yeah. not get into the, de- I mean, I'm more than happy to do it. I just got, I want to get on to other topics, but right. it was an, a remarkable experience. As a matter of fact, the doctors and nurses in the rooms, then uh, the room wanted us all out, but they stayed and they ended up crying and everybody was affected yeah. by it. Actually, so, Tom, I, want, I don't want to leave this because this is a very important point. Sure. That, that virtually every near-death experiencer comes back to life saying they no longer fear death. And this is quite remarkable because people who almost die but don't have a near-death experience are usually more afraid of dying after that. Uh, whereas with a near-death experience, you no longer have any fear of death. And that really changes how they live their lives. If you're not afraid of dying, then you're not afraid of taking risks in life and, and enjoying life to the fullest. Well, and as you write, 75% change their ideas when they come back about what's important about life. That's right. That's right. As I said before, they become much more spiritual. They also become much less materialistic, much less involved in or invested in uh, this world. Uh, that doesn't mean they don't enjoy things. That means they don't get addicted to them. Material possessions, power, prestige, fame, accomplishments, they're fine, but they're not important to them anymore because they existed in this other realm without those things. And in fact, we're feeling better than ever without those things. Well, there must be a continuum of sorts. I had Jim Lair on uh, the show earlier this year, and he wrote a very good book on character, but we got into this discussion. Uh, he He's the one that founded the Human Performance Institute and they're very data-driven. He said, for the most part, people, as they move into their 60s and 70s, the one thing that they think the most about are the relationships over the course of their lifetime. Right, right. And how they treated other people. Now, that yes. gets us into, and let me just tell everybody, we're with uh, Dr. Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia. He's a world expert in near-death experience. So that takes me into this um Review of life. Yes, yes. Let's talk about the review of life, what that is all about. Yeah. Many people who have a near-death experience report going through a review of their entire life, sometimes being guided through the review. And they report remembering things in very great detail, more detail than they could have remembered in their normal everyday life. And what's most remarkable to me is that they often describe reliving these events not only through their own eyes, but through the eyes of other people as well. Let me give you an example of this. 
uh, one fellow uh, named Tom who had a near-death experience in his 30s when a truck he was working under fell and crushed his chest. He remembered his entire life in very great detail and described one incident when he was a teenager driving his truck through town and a drunk man wandered out in front of his truck and almost hit him. He stopped the truck, furious, rolled down his window and started shouting at the man. And the man, unfortunately being drunk, reached his hand in the window of the truck and slapped Tom across the face. That was too much for this hot-headed teenager. So he opened the door, got out, and started pounding the man with his fists mercilessly and left him a bloody heap on the median strip, got back in his truck and drove away. Well, when he had his near-death experience, he relieved this through his own eyes, feeling the adrenaline rush and the, and the rage, but also through the perspective of the man he beat up, the humiliation of being beaten up by this kid, uh, the, the, the 32 blows on his face. Now, Tom couldn't have remembered it was 32, but he felt 32 when he lifted through the other guy's eyes. The other guy felt his nose getting bloody, his teeth going through his lower lip, and Tom, in his near-death experience, felt all this from the perspective of the man he beat up. And as he told me about this later on, he said, that made me realize, not just think, but actually know that we are all interconnected and that what you do to someone else, you're doing to yourself as well. And this leads many near-death experiences to embrace what we generally call the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But for them, it's not a guideline we're supposed to obey. It's the law of nature that we're all interconnected and you can't hurt someone else or help anyone else without hurting or helping yourself as well. And that changes how they live their lives. And another author, Christine Watkins, uh, who co-authored a book with Bishop Gavin Ashenden, wrote a book called The Warning uh, slash Illumination of Conscience. And they go through history uh, talking not from a near-death experience standpoint, but a whole bunch of other things that Oh, I don't know how I'd put it, supernatural, whatever, something, but talking about this warning in the review of life, mm. I know my, my stepson uh, had to ditch his F-16 in the Gulf of Mexico, and he ejected. He was telling me the story because we were talking about you coming on the show, yeah. and he was at 1,000 feet, and he thought he was too late, but he had this review of life yes. in the last seconds, and then snapped out and ended up when the... Uh, uh, the parachute opened up and he survived. But it's a fascinating, this review of life is certainly profound. Right, right, right. I should say that of the near-death experience, coming close to death is only one way you can have this experience. That's maybe the most common way in our culture now. But all religions have developed techniques for inducing this type of spiritual experience, whether it's meditation or prayer or fasting or you know flagellation, a way of getting yourself out of the normal everyday mindset into this spiritual realm. We're going to come back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, the father of research and near-death experiences, Dr. Bruce Grayson. He's the author of After. I suggest you all run out and get a copy. Uh, great. It's a, the doctor explores near-death experiences and what it reveals to us about life and beyond. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Lurie, and I'm with Dr. Bruce Grayson, the father of research in near-death experiences. We're exploring what near-death experiences reveal about life. He joins us from the University of Virginia, where he serves as Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences. 
So in some ways, we get a glimpse of um, of mortality, don't we, in all of this? Well, um, that's the way the near-death experiences interpret this. Uh, I, I think the evidence strongly suggests that what they're glimpsing is something that's mind or consciousness separate from the brain. And if you can have consciousness functioning separate from the brain during life, that raises the possibility that it can happen after death as well. Now, in addition, we've got some direct evidence from some near-death experiences. For example, many near-death experiences report encountering deceased loved ones in their near-death experience, or NDE. Now, that can be dismissed as just wishful thinking and expectation. But there are some cases in which the experiencer encounters someone who is dead, but who they did not know had died. And that kind of takes expectation off the, off the table. Let me give you an example of that. This is a young fellow who was hospitalized with severe pneumonia, and he had respiratory arrest episodes where he couldn't get his breath. And in the hospital, he had one primary nurse, a young woman named Anita, who worked with him every day. They got to be pretty friendly. And one day she told him she was taking a long weekend off. So he said goodbye to her. She took off. And he had other nurses working with him that weekend. And while she was gone, he had another respiratory arrest where he had to be resuscitated. And during that time, he had a vivid near-death experience. And he found himself in a beautiful pastoral scene. And there, to his surprise, the nurse, Anita, came walking towards him. He did a double take and said, Anita, what are you, what are you doing here? And she told him, this is where I am now, but you can't stay here. You need to go back to your body. And I want you to tell my parents that I love them very much. And I'm sorry I wrecked the red MGB. And then she turned and walked away. He then woke up back in his body in the hospital room. And when he, the first nurse walked into his room, he tried to tell her about this experience, which she remembered vividly. She got very upset and ran out of the room. It turned out that this nurse, Anita, had taken the weekend off to celebrate her 21st birthday. And her parents had come to town and surprised her with the gift of a red MGB. She got very excited, hopped in the car, took off for a test drive, lost control and crashed into a telephone pole, dying instantly, just a few hours before Jack's near-death experience. Now, there's no way he could have expected her to be dead or wanted her to die. And certainly no way he could have known how she died, and yet he did. And that certainly suggests that something about this nurse, Anita, after she had died, was still around to be able to communicate to Jack what had happened to her. So one of the other areas you touch on in the book are people that have uh, tried to commit suicide. Yes. Fascinating discussion yeah. about people. That, so tell us a little bit about their reaction after a near-death experience. Obviously, they survived this suicide. Right, right. Well, as we said before, uh, people come back from a near-death experience saying they're no longer afraid of, of death. And when I first heard that, as a psychiatrist, I was worried that that was going to make people more suicidal if they heard about this. Because I had worked with people who were contemplating taking their lives but were deterred because they were afraid of what might happen after they died. So I was concerned about that. So I did a study since I'm also a scientist. And I, I looked at, I interviewed every patient who was admitted to my hospital with a suicide attempt. And I compared those who had a near-death experience as a result of the suicide attempt and those who didn't. And what I found was that those who had a near-death experience were much less suicidal than those who didn't have an NDE after the suicide attempt. 
And that seemed counterintuitive to me. So I asked them to explain to me why that was. And they said that although they still have the same problems they had before the NDE, they now realize because of their experience that there's a meaning and a purpose to everything in life. And that these problems that they were having were not just things to run away from, but lessons they're supposed to be learning. And they said that when you have the sense of meaning and purpose in life, it becomes so much more meaningful, so much more fulfilling to be in this world. The world becomes much more beautiful. And that keeps them from being suicidal. And as I recall in the book, you talk about a couple of situations where people uh, attempted suicide and they were met by somebody who was told them that they were very disappointed that they tried to do that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, there, and there was, I go ahead. No, there was one young woman. I'm not sure I have this in the book or not, but a, a young woman who um, was sent back by, by a, a father figure, actually an uncle, who said that um, uh, he was not going to let her commit suicide and that no matter how many times she tried, he would send her back. And actually, I've heard that from other people as well, uh, that they were told they were, they were being sent back because they had to come back here and learn a lesson. They couldn't take the easy way out by suicide. Well, as you know, we have the Golden Gate Bridge out here, which attracts a lot of people to jump yes. off and whatever. Yes. And as I recall, somebody wrote a book where uh, he or she interviewed people who actually survived uh, the jumping off the bridge and to a person. Uh, they all immediately after they jumped regretted that they had jumped. That's right. That's right. Uh, it was very hard to do that study because most people don't survive that jump. And I think over a 10 year period, he found nine people who had survived. And everyone, as you said, had some features of a near death experience. Now, now they have put up um, barriers so that you can't jump off the Golden Gate. Uh, right. But back in the time, that was a, a very popular place for people to, to try to end it all. Now, not all experiences uh, are positive for people who have had near-death experiences. Some have distressing experiences. Can you right. briefly talk about that? We've got, oh, I think we've got two minutes to go to the segment. So okay, you yeah. Talk about people that have had distressing experiences. Right, right. Well, these are, are very difficult for people to talk to talk about. So I don't know how many there are. Most people who have studied this say between one and five percent of near-death experiences are unpleasant. But again, because they're so much so so difficult to talk about, there may be more that we're not hearing about. But people who have this experience are not necessarily nasty people. I've talked to people who led exemplary lives and had unpleasant NDEs. And I've talked to people who were in jail for, for life uh, because of murder or something else, and they have had beautiful experiences. So whether you have a positive experience or a negative one is not related to what kind of a life you've led. Um, we don't really understand what makes some experiences positive and some experiences negative. And you're a researcher, you're a scientist. Uh, we've talked a lot about stories and what you've gleaned from all of this. And you've run a number of studies briefly about a minute, talk a little bit about this. I mean, you've had rigorous studies and uh, yes, yes. what's the conclusion? Well, we, as we've studied um, rigorously over a thousand near-death experiences and look for patterns among them. We've also studied cohorts of patients who are admitted to the hospital with, with cardiac arrest or other near-death events. And we found that there are consistent patterns across cultures uh, that seem to be a part of the near-death experience. And they all result in the same pattern of after effects, increased spirituality, 
less investment in the physical world and the sense of being interconnected with other people as well. And we're going to come back for our last segment with Dr. Bruce Grayson, who is the world's expert in near-death experiences. He's the author of After, A Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond. You'll find all of our show notes and links at TheMentorsRadio.com. When you're there, make sure you subscribe so you do not miss any of our shows. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie. I'm with Dr. Bruce Grayson, who's generously giving his time to talk about near-death experiences. He has written a book called After, and it talks about what we can learn from near-death experiences. So with all of this, uh, and you've been at this for 45 years, and all the people that have them have been, or most, I think 90% are transformed. What has it done in terms of your view of life and your own, uh, how, you, how you navigate this world? <laughs> well, I hesitate to use their words. I'm still a scientist. I'm not sure how to define spiritual. But when I went into this field, I was pretty convinced that the physical world was all there was. And now I no longer believe that's plausible. I think I've seen too many things. I've heard too many things that are difficult and not impossible to explain if you just believe the physical world is all there is. Um, uh, furthermore, I went into this field thinking that we we're going to get all the answers, that simply by applying the rigors of science, we can answer everything. And now I think there are some questions we're just not going to be able to answer. Um, maybe things are just uh, unexplainable in terms of what we can understand. Many near-death experiences tell me that when they came back into their bodies, they could no longer understand what they experienced because our brains process all the information when we're in the body and the brains can't understand it. So I think, I suspect that there is some existence after physical death. Um, again, I'm a scientist. I don't think we have all the data. I think we may be misinterpreting the data. I'm not 100% sure. But if I were a betting man, which I'm not, I would put my money on there is some afterlife. But what it is, I have no idea. I tend to believe the near-death experiences that, the, that there aren't words to describe this. So I think that what happens after death is so far beyond the ability of our brains to imagine that I'm going to be totally surprised when I get there. <laughs> and now this is carried over. First of all, what directions do you think this research should take going forward? I know you're emeritus, you're still involved, but for the group back at the University of Virginia, what are new directions? Yeah, well, fortunately, there are a lot of people in the next generation who are picking up the torch and studying this, some of whom have much better grounding in uh, cross-cultural research or in neurophysiological research than I do. And they're going off in different directions, studying different aspects of the NDE. But for my part, being a clinical psychiatrist, I'm most interested in how it affects people. So I'm turning my, my, uh, my interest now on looking at people who have difficulty reintegrating into a normal life after a near-death experience, looking at what brings them to come to seek professional help, what type of help they find helpful, what type of help they find unhelpful, and trying to sort out how it can most be a, be a benefit to people who have difficulty coming back into this, quote, normal world after a near-death experience. But you're also, also, go ahead. I no, think you mentioned you're also doing some work with doctors about tending to the uh, right, right. spiritual side. Talk a little, just briefly about that. Right, right. When we first started doing this research 40 years ago, doctors hadn't heard about this. And now everyone knows about it. 
but there's still a lot of resistance to asking patients about them. So we're doing some studies among doctors and nurses as well, looking at what are the barriers to accepting this as something you normally uh, ask patients about. We've been through this before with people reluctant to ask people about drinking history, about substance abuse history, about sexual abuse history, and we've managed to overcome all those barriers. So now I'm looking at what are the barriers to talking about spiritual events like a near-death experience, and how can we overcome those barriers and get them to be talked about by every doctor. And in your the course of your life, what has brought you the most joy and energy? I think just appreciating that there is meaning and purpose in life and that we are all interconnected. Um, I don't have a near-death experience in my background, but I've seen this change so many people's lives that it's hard for me to dismiss that as being something that isn't real. Uh, I think that we are all interconnected and that we all have responsibilities to each other. And if you live your life that way, it makes your life so much more meaningful and fulfilling. And what is uh, the best advice you've ever received in life? <laughs> I think it's not to take myself so seriously. Uh, the things that we normally pride ourselves in, in, in having done or having been, we're not going to take them with us uh, if we survive this life. But what we take with us is the love we've given, the love we've received. And that's what seems to matter. It's relationships. Well, I'm very grateful that I was introduced to your book. This is a subject that is really of great interest to me because of my family background. And I love the idea that you're doing research. It's not just anecdotal. So I want to thank you very much uh, for joining us uh, today and uh, brought a time. And we've been visiting with the University of Virginia's Bruce Grayson, and we've been exploring what near-death experiences reveal about life and beyond. And that's it until next week. I want to thank Bruce for taking the time to provide his insights. It's been fabulous. We're going to be posting links to all the books we've discussed to our website, which is thementorsradio.com. When there, make sure you look at past shows with, with previous mentors and make sure you subscribe to future shows. You can also listen to us online, any device, anytime on any podcast platform, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify. So join us next week at the same time for the next edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Tom Laurie signing off for today. Remember, be all that you can be and keep the candle lit for all who struggle in the darkness. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, Copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.